And now, Manufacturing Matters with your host, Cliff Waldman. Good day, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of Manufacturing Matters. I'm Cliff Waldman. I'm the host for this weekly show on Manufacturing Talk Radio. This is the show where we think about all things manufacturing. We talk about the headlines, as we will today, the economic headlines, the political headlines, but we go deeper because we are looking at a sector that is changing by the day, changing in its structure, changing in its form, changing in what it does, changing in its global and its local nature. In these shows, the key word is new, new science, new technology, new economic thinking, new markets, and we are here to help you to understand how all of this will contribute to a new day in U.S. manufacturing. From Wall Street to Washington, from the boardroom to the factory floor, the U.S.-China trade fight, which has reached a fever pitch as of late, is rattling nerves and raising questions. It has significant implications, both short-term and long-term, for U.S. manufacturing, and we are going to be on top of every aspect of it for you because it materially affects your everyday life and the everyday life of the manufacturer. To help us get going on a, a discussion on what will be the first of undoubtedly many discussions on this important topic, I am joined by my esteemed colleague, Tim Grady, the co-host of Manufacturing Talk Radio. Tim, welcome to my show once again. I'm very excited to be on your show, Cliff. Recently, you were on ours. I love the energy on your show, so I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you very much. What we're going to do is what we've done before. is uh, Tim is going to ask me questions, and we're going to have um, an honest and searching discussion on what is going on between the U.S. and China and how it will and might affect manufacturing. So, Tim... I'm looking forward to your, your always challenging and interesting questions. Well, the first one, Cliff, is a little breathy. It'll take me a while to get it out. Um, the, the, one of the issues I look at in this trade relationship with China is, does China care that we have trade sanctions on them? Because somewhere around 2015, they began to switch their economy from an export-based economy, as I understand it, to a consumer-driven economy. So, you know, at the time that uh, we talked about steel being dumped in the U.S., they were 13 14% of our steel imports. By the time Trump got in office and, and put on the sanctions, they were 2% of our steel imports. Right. So they've, they've cut their exports dramatically to us, um, and they're focusing on a consumer-based economy. That's where they want to go. Do they really care that there's this trade war going on? Oh, I think they care a great deal. China, one thing that has been missing in, I think, this discussion and, and, and the very good discussions that have um, ensued around this issue is what's really going on in China. Yes, they, have, they realize that they need to balance their economy out and move from uh, – it is 1.4 billion people – and move from an export-driven economy to a more mature, domestically-driven, consumer-driven uh, economy. 
But you also have to realize that there's a great deal of pressure there. Number one, they have an aging population. And in fact, the, the fear about China that has been often said, that has been said for almost 15 years now, is that it may grow old before it grows rich. Right now, they are headed for a point not too in, in not the not too distant future, ten five ten years from now, where they will have an over sixty population that is collectively the size of four or five large European countries. That's going to put a great encumbrance on their um, on their public finances. Now, the move to a um, a domestic uh, consumer driven economy. It's going to be more challenging than the simple technical adjustment that that sounds like. In the urban areas, they do have something that suggests social security, or what I can vaguely call social security. But those kinds of social programs that we take for granted here in the United States are not not really going in the um, rural areas uh, of China where much of the population still live. While urbanization is going in there, it is still, you know, there are still large swaths of rural, um, rural pockets of, of population in the, chi- uh, in the Chinese mainland. So it's not going to be so easy for them to, to just simply make that adjustment to um, – to a domestically driven, consumer driven economy, and with this burden of aging and the burden of a difficult financial situation that resulted from them using the financial system to stimulate their economy during the difficult days of 2008 and 2009, they are still going to need their export prowess. They are still going to need those export firms to stay in business, to employ people. So Yes, it's a change, but I think they care a gr- but it's not as much of a change as you might imagine, and they are still very, very worried about keeping the revenue flowing from their trade story. They need to do that, and therefore, yes, I think that trade sanctions worry them more than they are even letting on in the public sphere. Thanks for that update, Cliff. Uh, next comes up the forced uh, uh, transfer of technology to China. That's a real sticking point, and, and I look at it somewhat harshly. Uh, I don't under, I mean, I understand what the issue is. Uh, I, I look at the companies that allowed it to happen, and they really shot themselves in the foot. But do I understand correctly that some of the things that we are asking for in the negotiations actually require China to change significant laws in order to meet the requirements we're asking for? Well, significant laws and significant attitudes, forced transfer of technology is one of them. In many ways, you've hit upon the true difficulty here. If it were simply a matter of dealing with the trade imbalance, which I I think – as a measure, sometimes gets misinterpreted and overinterpreted. If it was simply a matter of dealing with that, this would be a lot easier. But we are dealing with issues that, while they have great economic implications, are not strictly in the economic sphere. You, the forced transfer of technology, 
uh, intellectual property issues, which I think sort of has a kind of cultural uh, bias there, what we know has been um, cyber hacking. All of those are going to require, yes, some legal changes, which is not particularly easy in China because while Beijing sort of mandates, the uh, the provinces sort of implement and often very uh, um, unevenly, uh, but also cultural changes. That that it's those issues even more than the strict market trade uh, issues that are really making this difficult and even a little risky. And at the end of the day, if they are forced to change their laws, how achievable is that, at least that component of a trade deal? Well, if you ask me this, if you ask me that question, let's say five years ago, I'm just picking a number, five, six, seven years ago, I would have told you it's more possible than than, uh, most people realize. What? What's disappointing here and what's difficult here is that China has taken what at least the Western world would consider to be a few steps backward. For for a while, they were really opening up their markets. They were letting mar- – uh, Nick Lardy, the wonderful China expert at the Peterson Institute, wrote a book called Markets Over Mao, very popular book. And he just published another book called The State Strikes Back. And those two things sort of uh, summarize what I'm, what I'm talking about. For a while, markets were opening. There was even slight, very minute hints of, of a change in a, a, um, in a political culture where there were some villages that were actually allowing elections. Think about that, elections in China. So I, I began – I'll admit, and I was wrong on this. I, I began to wonder if there wasn't going to be an interesting political change, a, a kind of China spring. Well, I was very wrong. It went backwards. We have a reversion to a kind of an authoritarian government, um, and we have a reversion to statism. While they were allowing – Markets to um, to more set you know, set the price and, and the distribution of goods and, and all the things that markets should be doing. Now they are they are you know taking a few steps backwards to uh, to statism, the state-owned enterprises and that kind of thing. So under those under the kind of circumstances of of, of a step back into the old communist regime, the communist way of doing things, changing the laws changing the culture that underlies the laws that, that um, go to technology, for technology transfer, cyber hacking, intellectual property, are going to be more difficult. So while I would have said, yeah, you know, I, I think we, that, that's possible six, seven years ago, now, unfortunately, I'm, I'm far less sure of that. Yes, I, I would agree that uh, it's going to be a significant uh hurdle to get over. And the reason I ask those two questions, Cliff, is that I'm somewhat familiar with the story of a dispute that China had with Russia over, Mm -hmm. I think it was islands at the time. Uh, It may have been up near Kamchatka. Um, And Russia claimed they were theirs. China claimed they were theirs. Uh, the, The Russians tried to negotiate with China. They tried to take them by force twice and lost twice. And after 117 years, they finally came to an agreement in which China gave up nothing and uh, the Russians gave up everything. And the Russian negotiators said, China negotiators are intractable. Good luck dealing with them. 
<laughs> Boy, when, when when Russia says you're intractable, uh, yeah, that, right. that's a sign. Yes, they they are exceptionally difficult uh, to deal with. Uh, you know, uh, in, in many uh, many ways, we've been. It, it's just because of of the the difficult culture of, of China. Uh, that through its, you know, remember, remember this is one of the the oldest civilizations on the earth, thousands and thousands of years old, and they've had long cycles of inward development where they sort of pull away from the world, and outward development where they uh, push out of the world. Well, I, I think partially, you know, tagging along with that sort of in those long in and out cycles is is that when they're out, as, you know, as they have been really since the late 1980s, even 70s. Um, they don't understand compromise. They they are there in the world for mm-hmm. their own aims, and and the the culture has never been able to change that. Really, they they they've never felt like they've had to change that because they're so big, and they are now playing. They know that they are playing such a powerful role in global growth. You know, uh, why should we compromise? Right, right. Well, as large as they are, uh, balance of trade comes up, and. I question whether or not an economy of $5 trillion can balance trade with an economy of $20 trillion. Simple math would tell me it's just not going to be possible. We're going to consume more Chinese goods than they're ever going to consume American goods. What do you think? Well, absolutely. If if indeed the move toward – uh, a consumer economy, and one point again, 1.4 billion people. If the move toward a consumer economy is smoother and more successful than I, I'm frankly thinking that it might be, that that will take us a a, a long way toward balance. Yep, uh, people turn to the trade deficit as as saying that we need to balance. Uh, it's not necessarily the case. For the health, what people don't realize, for the health, we, we we have focused very much on bilateral trade imbalances and while they are they are more important politically than they are economically because even the most successful of economies even in the u.s you're very naturally going to have deficits with one part of the world and surpluses with another part of the world and be even with other parts of the world that's okay those deficits and surpluses often reflect many things they reflect population demographics. They reflect the savings propensity uh, of the pop and the of the population, the investment propensity of the the businesses um, in the population, the newness of industry. So though, those trade imbalances are very dynamic, along with the dynam the macro dynamics of growth. So again, it's okay for any one even very successful economy to be in surplus uh, that trades with the world as it should to be in surplus with parts of the world, in deficits with, with other parts of the world. What we don't want, and we want to trade with China, the world is much better off when the U.S. has strong trade with China. It is a good thing for everybody, but what we want is fair trade. We want open trade. We want trade, that, we want a, a, you know, trade with partners who are shaking hands, not who are increasingly at war with their interests. We cannot trade with a country that gets involved in cyber hacking, that gets involved in forced technology transfers, that makes the rules unclear, that makes it difficult for increasingly difficult and frankly confusing for companies to do business in there. They they are 
trade means openness. It means extending a hand. What China is more and more doing, it has it, been just pulling their hand back and I, to push the metaphor a, a little further, exerting their fist. So I'm not so concerned with the balance because those are, dy- those are naturally the forces of global dynamics. I am concerned about the fairness and upon the conditions upon which trade exists. And we have every right to take China to task on what's been going on with them. If you have Cliff uh, Lou Weiss, who is uh, host of Manufacturing Talk Radio, and I have chatted uh, with you with others on many occasions about, was there some other way to, to uh, hold China's toes to the fire other than using tariffs, which uh, George Washington talked about, you know, protecting industries, five presidents have tried. They've never worked. Was tariffs the only path? No, no. Unfortunately, uh, you know, I, I will, I will say just simply that I, without, we, we don't, you know, move into political discussions on our show. But nonetheless, I, I, I will give a policy note here. I wish that we, the United States, had stayed in the Trans-Pacific Partnership because it was a, a, an alliance of countries that excluded, excluded China and included many of the other countries surrounding China and East Asia. Had we done that, we would have had multilateral clout against China. That's part of the problem now. It real, the world needs to be taking China to task because this trade fight is going to very negatively impact Europe. Europe is probably as as uh, worried about this trade fight as as the United States is. So you know, if we stayed in TPP and we had multi a multilateral bulwark of uh, you know trade needs confronting China, I think we would have been able to use that leverage without using the unfortunate and market distorting leverage. Of tariffs. I, I think you hit the nail dead on the head. Um, clearly, having that economic clout, and as you correctly put it, that economic bulwark would have uh, given us a, a ace in our hand of cards that's probably much more powerful than uh, tariffs. Uh, you know, I look at tariffs now and question. We all thought you know tariffs will be on and off in six months. There won't be much pain. I'm not sure tariffs are coming off in Trump's uh, first term, and I don't know if he's going to get a second, so that would be the only time they might come off. Any prognostication on your part as to when tariffs might disappear, if at all? Well, that, that's, that's a political question. So, uh, I, you know, uh, it, it's thus very hard uh, for me to say. Um, I, I do think that, you know, just again, as a pure policy analysis issue, I, I, I think one of the problems we're seeing here is that the president has unilateral governance over the decision on tariffs. That may not have been, that may be something that we want to revisit. I, I, it, it, such, it has such impacts and so many impacts on indus, both industries in the United States and on our international relations, economic and otherwise, that perhaps allowing the president to have unilateral governance on tariffs and not have, uh, giving Congress some authority to weigh in on tariffs 
is perhaps not the best setup <laughs> for, that may for good be. policy outcomes. Right, right. Well, on an economic uh, uh, point of view, what are the tariffs really doing to the economy of the United States? It's really a tax. It's being paid by the companies and people who import those goods. Uh, it, does, it doesn't have a zero effect on everyday Americans. It has some effect. What so far has been the economic impact of the tariffs on the economy? Well, so as far as anybody can see, there are some good organizations that are doing serious um, analysis uh, of, of you know, the quantitative impact of the tariffs, and I'm, believe me, I'm, I'm very much in contact with them. But let, let, let me make a, a broad um, analytical um, discussion here of, of how to think about tariffs. Yes, they are taxes on imports, and in this case, imports coming in from China. Now, people, uh, I, I fear that people think that this is an arithmetic problem. That the ta- that ha- you know that the importing um, country, whether it's a, a consumer import or a business import, essentially pays uh, for the tariffs. But I think you have to realize that nothing in economics is simple math because nothing in economics in the economic sphere stands still. It's a very dynamic sphere. When you think about tariffs, you have to realize that if the prices of those imported goods go up, there, the, the, there may be an impact on demand for those imported goods. We have in economics, some, some viewers may be familiar with this, some may not be, something called the elasticity of demand, which is very simply the response of demand to a price change. And that elasticity of demand tends to be very, very industry-specific. If it's high – that then you know the tariffs are perhaps going to be paid by China because they'll sell less here. If uh, and if, if if it's if it's high, it can also mean that uh, we'll be sourcing from another country. Also, you can have exchange rate adjustments. Currency markets are making judgments of what these tariffs are going to do either to China or to the U.S. So because there's demand adjustments, people don't stand still when prices change. They may either buy less of it or buy it from somewhere else. Currency markets are making adjustments based on what they think these tariffs are going to do. There are other countries involved in terms of where we can get it from. So the outcome of putting on a tariff is really much more than an arithmetic problem it's really um, quite complex and very uncertain. And because it's very uncertain, I will say that for now, just for this, this initial stage of things, the real economic impact of the tariffs thus far is being born in that uncertainty. We don't know where this is going. We don't know what this is going to do. And what uncertainty does in a business sense is to really hurt business investment. Capital investment is by companies putting new machines, new new pizza ovens, new you know buy new things because you feel that your business is doing well on an upward trajectory. You want to capture the good market, but but if you're uncertain, if you think these tariffs may shake things up, it's not clear. A lot of things that, as I just said, can happen. Uh, you know, better hold off on the big capital expenditure until this is clarified. Well, when that gets around, it it hurts economic growth, and not just in the United States, but around the world. So 
while the uh, the effect of the tariffs is going to depend on three or four things: demand adjustment, exchange rate adjustment, new sourcing from new countries. The immediate impact, the right now impact, is coming from the uncertainty and uncertainty's impact on business investment. And as we all know, in the United States, business investment is a big source of demand for the U.S. manufacturing sector. A lot of machinery producers are probably going to feel the uncertainty that's generated from the tariffs in their slightly weaker order books for machines and other things that would that would um, be higher if uh, you know businesses were a little more certain of what the heck is going to happen here. Well, Cliff, I appreciate that kind of depth uh, in discussion in explaining this, which is why I look at you as one of our top economic experts for our network, because you, you really laid out more than the simple math argument, and you're absolutely right. I appreciate having the opportunity to discuss a bit about China with you, and, and I, I'm sorry it's not on the nightly news, because it, this has been an, an excellent uh, discussion with you. Thank you. Well, Tim, thank you very much for joining us. Um, listeners, well, this is the first of discussion. This is the first, but it's not the last discussion we're going to have on this. It is, it's an unfortunate story, but it is an all-consuming story. We'll be on top of it. We'll be on top of it because, as I remind my audience every week, manufacturing matters. And we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.